0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: You're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10.
0: Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links.
1: In our foreign language best picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima.
0: We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, Definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Remember, bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch?
1: Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, 8 Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the 4th of July.
0: Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book.
1: You like Huey Lewis and the News? Oh my god, it even has a watermark! And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series.
0: Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals every purchase
1: supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreelcom originals. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's guest of honor is from the empire of Japan. How would you feel if America and Japan were to enter war? The United States is the last country in the world. The Japan should fight.
0: I'm Pete Wright.
1: And I'm Andy Nelson.
0: Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends,
1: our conversation begins.
0: Letters from Iwo Jima is over. It's time to empty the poop bucket. I'm sure this <laughs> island is still alone. I'm going to be able to learn
1: American. So I'm sure I'm going to be able to leave it alone. I'm going to build the ground. I'm going to go to the the ground.
0: Okay. Andy, here we go. This is the hard part. It's always been the hard part. It will always be the shh, hard part. Shh. Don't make it how, harder. How I do you do want people to find us on the social internet?
1: People need to go to Instagram.com slash the next reel. <laughs> Period. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Letters from Iwo Jima, Andy. Letters from Iwo Jima. This is a very strange... It's strange to be talking about this movie. I had never seen this movie. Or it's progenitor, Flags of Our Fathers. And we're watching them out of order because of this dumb series that we've got.
1: There's not really an order to them it's ah, not like
0: or yeah. is there there's not uh, <laughs>
1: there's not but I, i'm looking forward to talking more about this because apparently yeah. this movie has fooled you into thinking there is this is great
0: what fool <laughs> like i'm a simpleton <laughs> <laughs> like a 2006 clint eastwood movie is gonna hoodwink me
1: will you twice pete
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh why are we talking about letters from my andy
1: we are talking about this film, This we are talking about this Clint Eastwood film, because this Clint Eastwood film was filmed in the language of Japanese. And because of that, it ended up uh, landing on this list of foreign language films nominated for Best Picture. It was not an actual foreign film, so it, it, because of that, it was not eligible to be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film even though it is a foreign language film, but this is the quirks of the Oscars. A foreign language film needs to be submitted by a foreign country in order to receive the nomination. In this particular case, since it was a U.S. film um, it filmed in a foreign language, it lands in this category that we're talking about, foreign language films nominated for Best Picture, even though it doesn't qualify for a foreign language film Oscar. So here we
0: are. For those who don't listen to the end of the show, I'm looking forward to Amazon reviews for this movie more than any movie we've talked about. (laughs) Uh, How angry do you think there are people right now that are watching an ostensibly American Hollywood production filmed mostly in California
1: that they still have to read? Especially Clint Eastwood's uh, uh, chair on the lawn fans. Right, right. Oh,
0: it's going to be delightful. Okay. So um, I I do have this one big question and it, it is so. The, the movie is is ostensibly uh, like thematically about the the story of mothers and fathers sending their children off to fight in a war in which they know they will never return. Right. That that's really what it's about. The whole it it centers on the battle of Iwo Jima. But the the sensibility of this film is is really one about family and connection and honor and uh, about you know those. Those we leave behind as told through these the letters that we write home when we're put in this position and what these uh, these soldiers, you know, carried with them and what these soldiers attempted to send home but did not. In fact, that is the entire mechanic of the movie. The letters from Iwo Jima are the letters found in a canvas bag that had been buried in one of the caves. In a mountainside on the island, and sort of rediscovered, and and the mechanic of the movie allows us to learn of the people who wrote these letters uh, as their voices sort of you know uh, fill the 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 screen over the course of um, our time with them, and and I I think the mechanic works uh, uh, overall. I I wonder though. Uh, <laughs> If, if you look at this as a spiritual sequel or a partner film with Flags of Our Fathers, do you have to have seen the other one to truly get everything out of this one? Now, I, I'm already kind of spoiled because I think you are already tricking me and you don't think you do. I'm glad
1: you asked, Pete. <laughs> I don't think you need to see them. In fact, I hadn't seen Flags of Our Fathers until uh, prepping for this show. I saw this film in theaters. I did not see Flags of Our Fathers in theaters back in 2006. They each stand perfectly um, on their own as a film telling a story about the Battle of Iwo Jima. One is from the side of the Americans, one is from the side of the Japanese. And they each have their own focus. This Japanese one that we're talking about really focuses, as you were saying, on the connections to the people that they've left behind, these letters that they're reading. And that's the the central uh, theme of the story here, especially on the side that lost, right? You're really getting A tragic story of these soldiers who inevitably, you know, almost all of them are going to die. The American side, that story ends up focusing not so much on the battle, although you do see the battle quite a bit uh, in flashbacks off and on throughout the film, but it really focuses on the three soldiers or, you know, three of the soldiers that were in the flag raising on Iwo Jima, that uh, now are dealing with the repercussions of having been in that famous photo and how that photo essentially is kind of the turning point for America in uh, finding its place in the war efforts to kind of get the money they need to kind of keep the war going, but really what that burden does to those particular soldiers. So they both have very separate stories. They both take really interesting looks at war and what it does to the actual, the individuals that are fighting it. But I don't think at all you need to see one and then the other. You need to see uh, flags first and the second. Like, I don't feel that's ever something that is required. I do feel if you do watch both of them, it fleshes the whole story out in a much more interesting way, but it's not necessary.
0: So I I agree with you there. I think for me, I hadn't seen either of them and I was coming out a little bit late. And so I managed to watch and uh, and research uh, letters and thought, OK, well, you know, I know these are pairs. I should watch the other one, too. Started watching it and I haven't finished it yet. So all of this is to say it's my, my letterbox ranking stands at blank. Uh, but I found the movie was that, that letters was made more interesting to me even after the first half of, uh, of Flags of Our Fathers. I think we learned so much more about just the battle, right? About the experience of the fighting. And when you get to see the the sort of reverse angle shots where the um you know the the Americans are the charging heroes and the terrified soldiers and the Japanese are the threatening you know hidden in the hills force um that makes the other side i think a lot more compelling and valuable because i think both of these movies are incredibly patriotic, uh, and and I th- I think from what I have read, the uh, the the Japanese reception of uh, letters from Iwo Jima is one that that was uh, you know largely positive as a result of the dignity that Eastwood uh, brought to these people. As you said, the losing army, the losing force, how they lived and fought and died is not told with any syrupy american patriotism it is told i think with a great deal of dignity toward uh japan and the japanese and what they were fighting for which largely was duty to country and family and and ideology that they had been you know uh enculturated uh, with all their lives too just like we had and i thought it was i thought it was fascinating to look at those two uh side by side um, I think it's better for it, and I think the uh, the uh, letters is certainly um, it, it fills in a lot of holes that I really wanted to to know. Questions that I found myself asking while watching letters were answered later.
1: Yeah, it's it's a fascinating look, and you're right; it's very um, patriotic on both sides. That was something that I found really interesting, and I think, well, I'm gonna I I don't. No, like I haven't done a lot of like research on on just Japanese culture and history. I I mean have loose kind of understandings from an American perspective, but I don't. I've never really kind of studied Japanese culture or history. But from this film, the way that they talk about kind of the imperial army and the pride that they have, and you're going to die for your country and all that sort of thing, I, I infer, I suppose, from that that the Japanese culture chose largely to not teach about what happened on Iwo Jima because when you listen to interviews of the actors playing some of the the characters in this film they talk about how they never learned about what happened on Iwo Jima in school. And they had to go find all sorts of resources on online and different places to actually learn about it. And they they thought it was such an amazing experience just personally, because they got to learn this incredibly important part of Japanese history, that because of kind of the, I don't want to call it shame of having been the loser in a big war, a big battle like this. But, you know, just they, it wasn't something to be prideful about. So it just wasn't something they talked about. And so I found that to be really interesting. And to that end, I find it to be that much more powerful that at this particular point, uh, you know, 2006, what we're like uh, 62 years later, they have uh, found a place to be at peace with that and acceptance of having lost that. And all of the like the japanese society just really latched onto this film as uh you know uh, a a moment of pride because of how these uh these characters were and and the way that they acted in in a situation that was kind of you know inevitably going to be a losing battle i mean you know the the mariana battle they had had been lost and all of the additional troops that they were supposed to get couldn't come because of that. All the planes had to go help somewhere else. It's just like everything just kept going wrong for for this troop here. And they did everything they could to remain patriotic to their country and stand and fight anyway. And I just find that to be a really powerful story. Okay, but let's talk a little bit about the the structure,
0: how they built the story, because there is a it is a brief uh introduction where we have these archaeologists who are digging and they find this canvas bag of letters and then suddenly we're back in uh in the mid-1940s and we are uh on the island and they're digging and they're just you know they're they're schleps like every other schlep in an american war movie or australian war movie that we've watched they're just kids they're kids with shovels generally and they're digging and uh i my question was almost immediately did we need the the bookend of the letters and the bag could we have told the story even using the mechanic of the letters and the soldiers writing these letters home could would that have worked without the bookends in the front and the back because i i kind of think it was pretty schmaltzy
1: you know i um i love it um (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't think it necessarily needed to be in the front. I don't mind the setup. Like, you find this bag, and it takes you into the situation. I don't mind the front. But I find the way that that Eastwood chose to direct that closing of this film to be incredibly powerful. The way that the letters spill out in that last shot and just fall mm-hmm. all over the ground as you hear this kind of cacophony of voices reading bits of their own letters... Mm-hmm. It just it hit me like uh, just really it was an emotional punch because it's like finally these voices that had never been heard finally had this chance to be heard. And so I found it to be really powerfully done. Um, I didn't find it schmaltzy at all. In fact, the way that the emotion was dealt with in this film, I found very uh, sometimes restrained, but always honest. And because of that, I found it a lot more powerful.
0: I you know okay I'll I'll actually give you half of that. I think you're I think you're probably right and I think that it, if, as long as you don't care, I'll go ahead and skip the opening because I think <laughs> as a I don't think we need the time travel aspect. I think we get right into the story, lead us all the way through and then flash forward. I think we've I think that's enough and that removes the schmaltziness for me completely.
1: And uh, we do and, get a letter uh, reading like right out of the yeah. gate when we have Saigo yeah. on the beach digging and then all of a sudden he's reading uh you hear the the voiceover as he's reading the letter to Hanako back yep. home and so it sets up the letters right away I think yeah you could drop that opening and just leave the closing or put the opening with the closing I mean I don't I don't care but I, I but I think you set up the letters already with the story being told and I I just feel that it works really well throughout the rest of the film the way that they weave in and out
0: Okay, so we buy that the uh, that the flashback thing, you know, I, I'm probably right on that. Uh, how about the honor and dignity element of this movie? That's one of the things that I went into this movie kind of wondering how they were going to handle because of the noted honorific process of fighting that is, uh, you know, that it is, comes with a discussion of the Japanese military and war and... um we have a lot of that in this movie and a lot of a lot of it to the point that it's incredibly uncomfortable in, in many uh, places. The the um, the suicides, the ordered suicides, the ordered beheadings um, uh, are are scary things. Uh, I think that shows for me, it just demonstrated a a, a twist on how we fight. Uh, when we fight one another, uh, that that uh, I, I don't think I'd seen quite so heavily.
1: As in that is movie. something that you do also see in Flags of Our Fathers. There is a scene where the soldiers, the American soldiers, go into the tunnels, and they walk into a uh, kind of a room in the caves that is full of dead bodies that had all committed suicide uh by holding a grenade to their chest which we which is the scene we see that's here. what we get to see here yeah it is Ugh. is horrifying I you know I understand the whole idea of dying for your country and honor and all that sort of stuff but I will never understand uh, this <laughs> like I don't understand this like I understand the whole idea of the of the kamikaze pilots, you know, dying by crashing into a, a boat and trying to take the boats down. Like that makes more sense to me than this. This is just saying, well, you know what? We got it. We're we've lost. We failed our our job here. We're just going to all kill ourselves. Where is the sense in that? I don't understand it. I I guess I can understand from a perspective how um how they might see that this is this is required and this is what they need to do to kind of make amends for having failed but it's such a strange um way of seeing things and it's really interesting to me to see how you have uh you have a general like uh Kuribayashi here who understands that and says don't do that i you know i need people we don't have a lot yeah get back. And that's what I, I really appreciated in Saigo is he kind of understands that. And I mean, I think also he just doesn't want to do it because it's, I think there are smarter ways. And, um but it's just, it's horrifying to actually watch. And it's, it's so tragic when you see his friend go through with it, knowing that, you know, this is it. And he's just sitting there crying, but he still pulls the grenade, hits it on his helmet and and clutches it to his chest. It's just, it's really horrifying but it's a it is a really interesting perspective on that whole idea of honor and dignity and i just i watched that scene and i just think what it takes to actually get yourself to go through with that and how, I mean, it it is, I, I guess I would say that you are, um, you're made of more metal than I am because you actually are able to go through with it. Right. I mean, that's a hard thing to actually commit to. Well, I don't know if, I don't know if it's metal,
0: but I think you do have the, you are free from the burden of history. Right. Oh, like sure. Yeah. You, you know what? The What drives one to do that, I have to imagine, is attached somehow to the thousands of years of history that is Japanese culture, of, sure. you know, of the way that fighting is done and the way family is honored and the way country is honored and and the way military is honored. And we don't have that right yeah you're right. <laughs> a pittance and that changes the way we fight and w- one of the things i think was just so brilliantly demonstrated in in the character of uh, uh kori Byayashi. and we should say Kuribayashi is a real character i mean this was a this was a uh based on a book on um on him and um i i, I think his what, what's so interesting in him is the the sort of clash of cultures that he has to live with. Right. He spent he was educated at Harvard. He had friends in, um, you know, in uh, military circles and political circles in the United States. He spent a lot of time in the United States. And we have this wonderful scene where he's at dinner being honored and uh, he receives a gift of a uh, an m1911 pistol and he is it's a beautiful weapon he still carries it you know on his belt it's the weapon that he uh, with which he kills himself at the end of the movie his take on fighting i need soldiers i don't want you to kill my soldiers uselessly i don't want you to kill yourselves i need you to the very end the only only honorable way to die is to die in battle That's that's something that he picked up, you know, from his global exploration. And um, uh, and I think that is uh, that's that's a really powerful conflict that we see at work right in the caves. And it leads us straight into this dynamic where none of his other, you know, uh, adjutants uh, trust him. Nobody thinks he's doing the right thing in the way he is configuring the island for battle.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting, and it, that's what I find. It's it's definitely a movie trope, right, where you have a, a war scene or really any sort of scene where you have— Trope corner, kind of Andy? Movie. Is that trope what corner. you just did? <laughs> I know. I got it. You, you set me up so well for it. It's Here we have this trope of having a group, you know, whether it's military or uh, corporate or whatever it is, where there's a group of leaders and there's this sense of tension where the one who's leading— is doing things in a way that most everyone else is like, this isn't how you do this. And everyone's just like, you're a buffoon. And there's this dissension in the ranks and some of the people under that leader uh, choose to do things their own way. And I don't think that if they had all gone along with uh, Kuribayashi that they would have won. I think it's it was kind of established early on that they just aren't going to be able to to really win because they don't have the men and the troops and the firepower and the planes. And I mean, they just don't have what they need. Uh, but I do feel like they might have been able to make a stronger stand if people had listened to him and really stuck it out and and put a solid plan in place that he was trying to move forward with.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny, too, because I think Eastwood does uh, an admirable job of making it feel like the, uh, you know, the the troops on— Iwo Jima were going to be completely outnumbered at a scale that was just massive because it kind of feels like, you know, uh, this is just a like crack squad of, you know, 100, 200 guys kind of squirreling around in the caves. Uh, but, you know, the the Japanese government accounts for 10,000 lost, missing soldiers that are somehow buried in Iwo Jima. It is. uh, There were twelve thousand Japanese soldiers on the island defending the island at the time, and um, and and so they were completely overwhelmed. But it wasn't as if they they didn't they they didn't have infrastructure. They couldn't put up a fight. And I think that's what they they actually demonstrate quite well. But also, it still seems like fifty guys kind of did all the work.
1: It, I mean, both films kind of feel that way. I mean, but that's yeah, right. That's the nature of these three, war those, films. <laughs> yeah, those three guys ran like 900 ships. Exactly. That's kind of the nature of war films. I mean, you're following a few, but obviously. And, and yeah. it also, in context of what we're watching here, it feels like it's kind of a fairly quick battle. But, I mean, it goes on for well over a month. It's like six weeks yeah. that this battle actually rages on. And so uh, you, you do and, kind and of
0: comes clear when he says, you know, yeah, I haven't eaten. I haven't yeah. had water now in six days. Right. Like Then, and, you know, things are gone south. Please dig up some worms. Right.
1: His right. Exactly. Yeah. His commanding officer says, go get some worms that yeah. that really sets that up for. OK, they've been here for a little bit of time <laughs> if they're eating yeah, but, worms. But,
0: you're, to your point, we never really get a sense of how long that is. I don't think they ever say. It's just all we get are uh, when he tries to encapsulate stretches like, you know, three yeah. days later or six days later, but we yeah. never get a sense of the entire scale of the war. I yeah, don't think.
1: You, you don't. Uh, I don't think you do. There's nothing on screen saying uh, with, you know, dates or how much yeah. time has passed or anything. But you do. The, it it changes quite a bit because all of a sudden they're in the caves a lot and you, they go outside and it's night and then they're in the caves a lot and they go outside and it's day and then it's night and then it's day and you know so you know that time is definitely passing and so um i it's just yeah it's like you look at it go oh wow this was six actual weeks of going through this that is a
0: that's another thing that that you get in flags of our fathers because they do go through things like okay here's what we're going to do we've got 10 sustained continuous days of air bombardment well, that's ten days you don't really see in this movie because it's compressed, but you see the results, you see the rubble, you see them sleeping on god awful giant bugs.
1: <laughs> that is a one big cave centipede. Oh, it's like prehistoric.
0: That's nobody you know, cares enough about that centipede.
1: Oh well, uh, yeah. Yeah. I just I will say though, that it actually struck me more in this film. Than in Flags of Our Fathers, watching those bombing runs, I just like it really if I had seen that coming toward me where it's just like a sky full of planes and every single dot up there has like 50 little dots falling from it. (laughs) Like those shots in this film, it was like, wow, I don't even know how I would react to that other than, I that's it. I mean, it's really that would really kind of uh, uh, turn my stomach to see just how how horrific that actually was from the perspective of the people on the ground,
0: especially after they've been through the first one. And then they have to go back into the caves and feel the earth shake like yeah. that constantly, right? constantly, uh, just terrifying, it really is. Uh, we do do we have another did you want to talk about another trope i know you're yes, excited about this we did have trope.
1: another movie trope where you have a, a suicide and but done in a way where you know the person who is going to uh to shoot themselves and uh they're given the gun and then the other characters all walk off screen and the camera stays with the other characters and then you have the gunshot ring from off screen and then they just kind of continue walking and that is that is a very common movie trope that you see quite a bit and it works obviously better with gunshots because of the noise it doesn't work so well with with other with when they take pills in the other room
0: Um, Hangings, hangings right
1: so uh but yeah definitely definitely one of those uh movie tropes
0: i uh, there are some japanese bits in here that i think are really lovely and and i i do want to mention the thousand stitch belts because it got me um when i first came up i thought wait there's like is that like the first bulletproof vest? No, it's not a bulletproof vest at all. They were very proud of them. Uh, and they're actually quite lovely. It's called a Uh, And it is a, a, it's worn by, uh, usually by a man's, or it's, it's worn by uh, the, the man made by the mother, sister, wife. Uh, and it is, um, well, the, the way Wikipedia talks about it, It is made by the mother, sister, or wife who would stand near their local temple, train station, or department store and ask any female passerby to sew in a French knot stitch. During the most hectic days of the war, in order to meet demand, women's patriotic organizations would gather to make Senenbari en masse. These were placed in imonbukuro, or comfort bags, and sent overseas to soldiers. And uh, they they are lovely uh, sort of... Uh, good luck charms. of good luck yeah and they are really uh it was really great and they make kind of a lovely deal out of them in this movie when you watch all the the soldiers that we see as they get ready for battle they strap them on around their waists and
1: and that's uh, quite lovely it made for a great uh just kind of a bit between uh you have uh Shigo and shimizu as uh, and Saigo and his buddy, and then Shimizu, as they keep watching him, thinking that he's a spy, uh, like a military police who's going to arrest him and stuff. And of course, that's not the case. But I, I just liked that bit when they put theirs on, and they're like, "Oh, I bet he doesn't have one," and of course, he does. And it's just it, it was just another bit of tension there. But it became kind of that you know that item that you often have in a film where one character passes it to another, and Saigo ends up with Shimizu's and. And uh, uh, tries to get it to him and then um, uh, is unable because uh, Shimizu and the other person that he's escaping with are gone. Uh, A commanding officer shoots one of them down and uh, Shimizu escapes with it, but, uh, or escapes, but not for very long, sadly. So it's, but it it was an interesting, he doesn't really have that much luck. Well, it's because he didn't have his thousand stitch belt, right? That's Right. It's it's a it, it, I just found it to be an interesting little uh, bit of uh, Japanese uh culture that I didn't know anything about and appreciated that it was in here because I found it to be an interesting element added to these characters and kind of the importance they placed on it putting them on it just it it felt like another of those ritualistic elements that we have throughout the film um uh, which I really enjoyed seeing as parts of the Japanese culture it really kind of helped inform my impression of of the way things were treated.
0: You could extend that same sort of uh, appreciation to the film's treatment of Japanese dogs.
1: (laughs) Am I right? Well... (laughs) Rough. It's uh, Boy, you could almost say this is another war trope where you have a commanding officer who's who's demanding that uh, a private do something that's just horrible and wrong but they're demanding it anyway because for whatever reason it's almost like a test and in this particular case yeah this is why shimizu is with this particular troop as opposed to the military hoity-toity military school that he had been in because he refused to kill a dog that his commanding officer told him to silence and uh it was uh yeah i was like wow okay he's uh he's doing that it's uh it's pretty rough
0: do you know what kind of dog it was?
1: I didn't look. Was it a it looked like a chow or something. I didn't I don't know.
0: Well, I, I can't really tell. There are a couple that share the same sort of look like it's either an akita uh which is the um Hachiko uh dog that mm. but one of the one of the furrier ones or a Hokkaido ken uh which is in an, uh, another one of the really old bloodlines and have a lot of white uh in them. Yeah. Um but uh, it was a lovely soft pillow of a dog and it made me very sad. Those kids, Oh, the kids.
1: I know. Yeah.
0: You don't don't kill the dog. No. Um okay, this is a, a bit that I actually feel like you're holding back on me because I haven't finished the movie. I'm not 100% sure where the crossovers lie and and how intentional they were because I know you know when we talk about getting the film made, this was not a this was not originally Conceived as, oh, I'm going to make one giant sort of Lord of the Rings or Matrix style back to back crossover movie, and yet there is crossover.
1: There is, I. Uh, but you're right. The way that Eastwood, he it sounded like he kind of came up with the idea of doing this with Steven Spielberg. They were chatting. Steven Spielberg is one of the producers on this because DreamWorks Pictures um, had been uh, a co-producer on this, and they were chatting about the story, and and Eastwood uh, thought it would be really interesting to look at this other perspective and and of course spielberg was like oh i love that idea that's great let's do it as a second film and they were like well oh, okay let's do it and because of the the way that it just de- they decided upon it they already pretty much had flags of our fathers in motion and so in the process of kind of getting that ready and shooting and everything um, then they had letters from Iwo Jima Ready, And they basically went from filming Flags of Our Fathers into filming Letters from Iwo Jima, but they didn't have the forethought and the planning to actually build all of that in place um, to kind of have a a fuller crossover. So because of that, there is not a lot. But there is actually some. uh, It's just, it's very minimal. According to Wikipedia... Uh, you know, Wikipedia uh, is uh, not always right, but um, they say that there is an actor, one actor who crosses over, and that actor is Alessandro Mastrobuono, who plays a character named Charles W. Lindbergh. Now, according to IMDb, Alessandro Mastrobuono is actually in Flags of Our Fathers, According to IMDb, he is not in Letters from Iwo Jima. So I don't know if I'm supposed to believe Wikipedia or not. However, there is a crossover on IMDb's pages uh, between the two. And so I'm like, well, there's at least this one for sure, because, uh, you know, IMDb, which, you know, they make mistakes too, but generally are a little more accurate for these sorts of things. The pilot in both films, uh, pilot... uh, it's just pilot credited in both. So it's one of the people flying one of the planes is Dick Skip Evans. That, as far as I can tell, may be the actual only crossover between these two films.
0: Who I really wanted to be in the crossover was Sam.
1: Me too, right?
0: I wanted to see how Sam ended up there. And that was going to yeah. be a great, uh, a great bit.
1: Well, what Alessandro? It it is possible that we did have Alessandro in both. I just don't know because he's not credited in Flags, but he was a flamethrower guy in Flags of Our Fathers, and so I mean we do have flamethrower guys in both films. So it's entirely possible that he was actually used in both.
0: Uh, It does actually lead us that that particular particular segue does actually lead us to treatment of um, of captured soldiers, which I think is done. uh, That that's one of the I don't even know if you're going to call it a trope, but it's one of the things that both films cover from each perspective that I thought was particularly uh you know terrifying
1: well, I do think it's interesting that in in both films definitely in this film it really shows you that the treatment of of prisoners the treatment of of just other humans from the other side that you're fighting against it almost becomes an individualistic reaction to how you're dealing with that mm-hmm. the first time we see these soldiers dealing with somebody that it seems like they might have captured it's a it's an american soldier who's they're in a tunnel and there are like three japanese soldiers just beating the hell out of this person and then they take their bayonets and just and just stab him, and that's the end of this person instead of keeping him as a as a prisoner the second time we see uh, nishi who has uh, found sam and says no we are going to treat him that's what we would want them to do to us we are going to take care of him and you can see the reaction on the other soldiers. They're like, are you kidding? And uh, But they do. And it becomes, for me, one of the most powerful moments in the film. Because after, after Sam dies, uh, Nishi reads the letter that Sam's mother had sent to him. And that is that makes for the most powerful moment in the film for me. It just it just you know, breaks my heart. The way that they react, the way that everyone reacts like it's their own mother writing this letter to them. Uh, it's just it's heartbreaking. Um,
0: well, yeah, I mean, that's the and that's the that is the point of the film. Is yes. to Get us to the point at which we discover that both sides are full of their mother's children.
1: Exactly. But then what I think is interesting is you contrast that with when, I mean, I talked about how uh, how uh, Shimizu had escaped with somebody else, and uh, that other person got killed by their captain, but Shimizu made it out. He surrenders to the Americans, and the Americans go off to fight, leaving two soldiers behind to take care of Shimizu and another soldier that they had already captured. And these two American soldiers are like, you know, this, this is a lame assignment. I know how we can get out of this this one of them pulls out the gun and kills them both horrific horrific but then that's contrasted with the end when we have Saigo who is in he's delusional he's kind of hit this point where his he's just fallen apart and he's got all he has in his hand is a shovel but he sees the american soldiers and one of them has kuribayashi's pistol and he just starts swinging and trying to attack these guys and the Their commander says, "No, don't shoot and then one of them knocks him out and they take him uh captive and uh, put him in the on a medical cot and so it's i I found that to be. Uh, just a powerful example of how it' so often in these situations falls to the individual, not necessarily what the rule books say as to how you do things and uh, it was It was kind of a powerful reminder in in wartime how these things happen
0: well and that's the that is the lesson right that um you know not just that it falls that that you 're ignoring the rule book but just the power of the individual uh over uh the authority. When it comes to just you know, it's it. When it comes to individual decisions in life or death, like when you're at a distance uh, and you're part of a mass, it it sure is easier to pull the trigger. But as soon as you're one on one, it it's it's uh, it gets much more challenging. We see that. I that's some of that's the big question that many of the very best of these war movies, you know allow you to investigate i think that we see the same thing in saving private ryan uh where we anytime you have these one-on-one where you just realize that these guys are just key, their mother's kids i think um you get that uh that bit of a, a chill washover it's i find it tough to watch
1: yeah very true very true
0: clint eastwood uh you know i i it seems on first You know, you first hear that Clint Eastwood is directing a movie with an all Japanese cast, all Japanese script Uh, that that feels kind of strange. But he is old hat Clint Eastwood at acting in uh, films in which there are many, many languages uh, spoken. And hearing him talk about it, he's he calls back to his, um, you know, his Italian films where uh, one guy's speaking Spanish. One guy speaking Italian. He's speaking English, and somehow it all comes together. Uh, you know his his word on directing a Japanese cast is good acting is good acting, and uh, uh, you you just you just know it. Uh, didn't seem to have a problem with it, and I certainly didn't
1: notice any issues. He, uh, his regular casting agent, Phyllis Huffman, had cast this film for him. Um, she had been working with him since the early 80s, like a long time working with Clint and his projects. And it was really tragic because she actually came down with uh, kind of a terminal illness right before this and couldn't travel, couldn't do anything to uh, to kind of get out of dealing with it. And, um, and Clint wanted her to be able or the casting direct casting agent whoever it was to be able to potentially go to Japan go to LA wherever and she couldn't so her son actually stepped in and dealt with the casting for this particular film and was able to send videos of everybody back to her so she still was able to cast it from um from her uh, place in New York but this was her last project that she worked on with with Clint she died uh, before the film was released sadly Uh, so that was very tragic but I think you know they they found a Japanese casting associate also who was able to really make sure that she knew the difference between Japanese, Japanese, you know, Japanese American, Japanese uh, as as far as the the sound of the language, and made sure she cast the right people and put all the 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 people together. And they found some incredible actors for this. And what I found interesting in, in listening to Joel Cox, who is another Eastwood regular uh, as far as his editor goes. Joel Cox said when he was editing this, he just uh, he edited it. He he only reads the script once and then he just edits from there. And I mean, obviously, every every clip that comes in has kind of its scene number and all of that. So uh, he and his assistants were able to put together an assembly edit of the entire film with no script, no translations or anything just speaking in Japanese just by hearing what they were saying, the reactions that they had, the looks on their faces. They cut the whole thing together and then they showed it to kind of the Japanese translator and they only had to change like four things that they had kind of messed up on as far as um, language, and I think that's an amazing example of exactly what Clint would say was saying about good acting is good acting. I think you can see that in a story. You don't necessarily have to understand the language; it's there, right? It's just that's just another part of it. I found that to be really insightful as far as how Clint and his team approach this.
0: Absolutely, and and this comes from a script by uh, Iris uh, Yamashita, who uh, was a uh, she's a. <laughs> technologist, uh, first and foremost, but her love is uh, apparently uh, creative writing, according to her bio. Uh, She's only got one uh, big screenplay uh, to her credit, and it's this one. Actually, as I understand it, uh, Eastwood found the story of, uh, you know, our fair general here and hired her to come on and do the research and and, uh, uh, you know, figure out if this is a story worth telling. And as they're getting ready for Flags of Our Father, she shows up with a script and uh, he says, this is a great story. Let's start thinking about, you know, I'm already down the road on this other thing. Let's start thinking about it. But it uh, allowed him to start seeing these as kind of a pair of of films. Thanks to uh, uh, thanks to Iris's early
1: work. Yeah, she had been brought in by Paul Haggis, who was the screenwriter on Flags of Our Fathers and Million Dollar Baby. Before that, he'd worked with uh, with Clint uh, a number of times, and um, and when. Clint was like started kind of exploring this book. Paul found Iris, I think, through his agent was looking for somebody who spoke Japanese and or at least understood it a little bit and the culture and found her, even though uh, they have the same agent. And even though she's a Japanese American, she has Japanese parents and definitely understood the culture and everything. But, uh, didn't understand Japanese or she says she understands it at like a third grade level. So she actually wrote the script in English and then it had to get translated. And, uh, and even then. Actors like Ken Watanabe would go through, and they're like, "Well, what? I, you know, maybe we say it like this," and they kind of helped massage it and everything. But Iris definitely was an important element in all of this because she definitely had an understanding of the culture and the way things would be said and the rituals and all of that. And I think she brought a lot to the telling of this story that uh, is incredibly important. So it's it's a thrill that um, you know, from not having done anything, she ends up jumping into this project and uh, really accomplishing something quite, uh, quite beautiful.
0: Yeah, as I understand it, this uh, interview I was watching with Clint, where he was talking about working with her and how she she comes to him with this body of research that she's done. He said, like, this was this was clear very early that she found a real passion in this story and that she brought. Every bit of the heart to uh, to telling, you know, the story of General, you know, Kuribayashi in the mountain,
1: um, which I think is uh, it it shows. Absolutely. It really does. And I think it it hit a personal spot for her also, because her Mm -hmm. I think she talked about how her mom had been in Tokyo at the time um, with uh, a lot of the bombings there and, uh, you know, the the massive fires in Tokyo. And her family had to be uh, evacuated and everything at the exact yeah. time that this was happening. And so she found that connection to be powerful because, you know, all of these different Japanese people were dealing with a lot of uh, personal issues at the time that were under the umbrella of this enormous War and so it it just had this personal connection for her, which I found to be uh, interesting.
0: Uh, you want to do a quick run to the rest of the cast? Uh, who stands out for you?
1: Well, obviously uh, Ken Watanabe is just fantastic, and I I I, don't know, I just I love watching him. He's been around for you know since the mid eighties. Yeah, I just yeah. I don't think I had ever really known who he was until his Hollywood debut a few years before this in The Last Samurai. And that's when I was like, oh, this guy is incredible. And then, of course, Memoirs of a Geisha, Batman Begins, and uh, leading into this. And, uh, you know, he's just been kind of a, a, a screen presence since then. If you ask me, he's not enough of a screen presence. I really love seeing him on screen and uh, would love to see more of him. He's just uh, brings a lot. Gojira. <laughs> and sometimes... <laughs> Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. No, he's fantastic. Can't get enough of him. Uh, And absolutely. You know, he's the last 20 years, uh, 77 some odd credits. Uh, More than that, 20 years, probably 30 years, 77 credits. And I think he's just captivating to watch. Absolutely. We have uh, Kazunari uh, Ninomiya. Ninomiya? As yep. Saigo, uh, Saigo is our, our vessel of a soldier, the vessel of a soldier who is uh, conflicted about where he stands and the role of Japan in the mili- and in this war. And and we find out early on that he is he's already um, kind of thrown in the towel.
1: He's an interesting actor to have in here, and I actually really enjoy seeing him. I mean, he's only 22, 23 at the time they're filming this, so yeah. he's got a very, very baby young face, right? <laughs> very little, which um, I think captures quite a bit of the uh, of the sense of exactly what was going on in the time of this war when— so many people had already been fighting, and now they're at the point where they're bringing in the really young people and also some of the older people to come in and fight. And that, I think, is uh, you know, it says a lot about kind of, um, of that. But it's just watching him, and I, I love his journey. Like at the very beginning, he's talking about this place sucks, it stinks, it's you know, this is you know, we're just shoveling this dirt. And then at the end, he's he's back on the beach, and he and and uh, his general asks him, "Are, are we still in Japan?" And, you know, he's and he all of a sudden now has this connection that this isn't Japan. This is Japan. This is important. And uh, he agrees to bury his commander here. It's it's a powerful, powerful moment. Um, I do think it's interesting that uh, he's to a lot of people better known as just nino he's a member of the japanese um, pop idol group arashi and i i just couldn't help but kind of chuckle to myself because over in our discord uh kind of community we had been having a, a conversation about dunkirk and how some people were up in arms about how christopher nolan didn't even know who harry styles was when he was in his <laughs> film And I'm just like, I wonder if Clint Eastwood knew who Nino was in
0: the
1: process of making this one. Because here he is with another pop star uh, as kind of a star of his film.
0: Well, Nino's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, He's and And a lot of it is I, I don't know I'm a little bit frustrated because I feel like we've talked about this particular trailer uh at some point in the show, but it's not in the database, and the database now stands as up to date and so it it hurts me that we of haven't all talked the about trailers
1: it. we've ever talked about on the show wow
0: well, of all of our picks, oh okay, all of the picks that we've ever since two thousand eleven when you and I were still picking yes. picks on this show. Uh, and Assassination Classroom, he played Koro Sensei on you know, Assassination Classroom. And I feel like we've talked about that in the it, when we were doing, I don't know, um, uh, old boy series like there's just there's something that that is that that feels so familiar about it. But he was in this and I think it is uh, it's fantastic. And I want to talk about uh, Japanese incredibly violent classroom movies soon. <laughs>
1: Uh that would be an interesting series all of its own. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um we have uh Suyoshi Ihara's Baron Nishi, the equestrian soldier.
1: <laughs> That's uh what an interesting little I, I found his character to be fascinating. Here his here he is an Olympian, uh an Olympian a winner in the uh the horse. Uh, not the horse racing, but the horse jumping. Is that what it is?
0: Equestrian show jumping.
1: There it it is, yeah. He talks to Sam when they're treating Sam about how, you know, he knows Mary Pickford. (laughs) Now He's had her over to Tokyo to his place to dine. And... I just was like, what an interesting perspective to hear. You know, this is another human being who has this uh, kind of connection to to uh, Sam in a way that Sam was least expecting. I just found that to be really a unique take on this. You know, you don't see that in war where you have people who, outside of war, would have been interacting. And here they are um, fighting each other. Just really kind of made for a very unique moment.
0: Well, there are a couple of sequences that, that I really like and a couple of things in here that I think I would have liked um, e- even more. So do you... Uh, In Flags of Our Fathers, there's a sequence where we hear the Japanese uh, radio announcers, right, saying, talking about your uh, girlfriends at home, like they're listening to Japanese radio. And she says, oh, think about your girls at home. Are they being comforted by other men? Will she let them kiss her? Right, that kind of (laughs) stuff. Well, we were doing the same thing during Iwo Jima, broadcasting uh, requests for Nishi to— Turn himself in. Right. Because American forces knew that he was a a Japanese commanding officer and they said, quote, the world will regret losing Baron Nishi. Uh, Please turn yourself over. You are too you're too much of an asset to the world. Please, please, Baron Nishi, please turn yourself in um, and and, end this. Uh, for for the world you're too important and and we didn't get I, I didn't notice any of those appeals but i thought that was a really interesting twist that um you know he is uh he was that important and i'd never heard of him before this movie
1: well i i don't think i could name any olympians from the 1930 what was he in the 30 32nd olympics 32. yeah yeah, uh, I, I I wouldn't have been able to tell you any of them. So um, I'm not that oh, you surprised. Didn't, you didn't
0: take that class? Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I barely Fine. missed
1: that one. But that's, and that would have been, I don't know how well it would have fit into the story, but that would have, if there had been the forethought when they were putting these stories together, that would have been a really interesting crossover for these two movies where you would have on the American side, you have the radio playing and they're saying that. And, you know, that could have been a really unique perspective to have included.
0: They never actually found uh, it confirmed finding Baron Nishi's body on Iwo Jima. However, John C. Shively wrote a book called The Last Lieutenant and tells a story told by his uncle in which his uncle's platoon fires on a group of Japanese soldiers in the morning. Uh, the following morning, a body re- resembling Nishi's is found wearing riding boots and jodpers. His uh, the uncle is almost certain that this was the body of Nishi. Riding boots and jodpers, Andy. Hmm. If you're gonna go, go in riding boots and jodpers.
1: I'm wearing mine right now, actually. I guess <laughs> <With> that hat. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, when you're on Zoom, <laughs> nope, nobody can see your jodpers. Exactly. <laughs> uh rio kase plays shimizu another young actor um playing uh a, a, i think a beautifully conflicted character and his scene where is dealing with his decision about the dog i thought he was just really uh, just carried all the weight of that not just in that mm-hmm. scene but in his conversation later with saigo about that uh that internal battle that he went through
0: and it's such a nice reveal, too. I mean, this is one of those little character mysteries that we get that I think is quite special, where they, that the tension is building between those three characters. And then ultimately, when he, when he comes clean with Saigo and tells that story, it's, it really is a beautiful little relief. I think yeah, it was just expertly right. written uh, to, to give us something to care about between these characters, apart from the fact that they're still just hanging out in, in caves together. Yeah. What are your thoughts on shooting in caves, Andy? We've been uh we've spent a lot of time in caves and sewers uh over I think this year. It's been a real cave and sewer year for the next reel. And isn't that fitting uh, I for 2020? I feel like it's I dead. feel like
1: it's pretty apt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody underground. That's right. Uh yeah, no, it's perfect. Uh, how do you feel like this one handled the caves?
1: I thought uh, they actually lit it really well. I, I mean, I think that between the production design, uh, uh, Henry Bumstead, who is just kind of, I mean, his final film, classic production designer with James uh, Murakami as the art director, and then Tom Stern's camera, they both, they Created a beautiful, like really, I, I guess I'll call it a beautiful underground world that fits really well in context of this. I mean, it definitely feels like built caves. It's not like we're spelunking in the descent or something like that. It, it has yeah. a carved out sort of feel, and I think that it works very well in context of the story. And I think pair that with the color treatment of the film, where everything has this muted, uh, gritty tone. I, I just feel like it's just impeccably put together. I really enjoy. Uh, the there is a
0: lot way. of sepia. There's a lot of sepia. And I go back and forth between feeling, is it just washed out or does it look antique, right? Is it, are they, what are they going for? I think ultimately it works, but my eyeballs had a hard time kind of adjusting to it. I think to your point about, about the, um, you know, having it feel sort of seted, um it, I, I think it does. This goes to, you know, shooting most of it in California. Um, you know, you do get a lot, of, uh, a lot of up angles on rises where they're just coming over and they're backlit, you know, these soldiers coming over the hill that is so clearly, you know, on a set. But uh, I didn't find it distracting at all in the context of this. I think it was intercut with some great effects work, some great sort of, um, you know, the, the big sweeping, um, you know, Iwo Jima Island landscape work the, the all of the ships and guns coming in from the beach, I thought were really great. Um, so I didn't, I didn't find any of the more intimate stuff um, distracting at all. I think they did a fantastic job. Uh, well, and it's, inter- shoot, it's yeah.
1: interesting that they did choose to film the bulk of this uh, in California. I mean, just you know, in Malibu or wherever they were, kind of just putting that black sand on the on the beach yeah. to kind of create that look. Because in Flags of Our Fathers, a lot of what they were filming there was in Iceland. And so yes. I, I think it's interesting that they, uh, they realized that the perspective of this story was largely underground, and you're not seeing as much of the above ground, yeah. so they didn't necessarily need the same sorts of uh, scenes. And so we're able to just deal with the, the, all the rest of the stuff um, in, uh, in California.
0: Music, Kyle Eastwood, Michael Stevens.
1: It's such a great score. It's it's so tragic. It's got just a powerful feel to it. Um I, Kyle Eastwood I think really does an admirable job filling in for the music that his his dad wrote and cuz I think Clint wrote the music for Flags of Our Fathers uh and then Kyle Eastwood and Michael Stevens were uncredited on on uh, that one with some additional themes and stuff because they wrote this one. And I think it, it, there's, there's some marriage in, uh, in little spots and stuff. And I, I just, I feel like this score is just, it really is just um, very powerful, very subdued and simple, but it works uh, exceptionally.
0: It's a weirdly uh, hybrid Score a lot of it is done. You know, leads into it this sort of traditional Japanese mode pentatonic scale, right? That that you you have you kind of hear if you just sat down at a piano and played the black keys, right? And so um, this – and then it'll incorporate these more sort of Western tones throughout as they, as they sort of grow the themes. And I think it's, it's quite lovely. I found it a little bit distracting as a result because my ear couldn't quite adjust to the things that they were doing when they were bringing in more of the Western tones to the, to mm. the Japanese um, scale. But um, it is inventive if nothing else. It is a, a really inventive and lovely
1: haunting score. I, I think so. It's For me, it's more of a catchy score. Catchy, I don't know if that's the right word. But I don't a score think of, it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I will say uh, catching. it. Like it, It's something that caught me more, caught my attention more. Yeah, it has than, like stopping power, right? Yeah, exactly. Than, for example, the score for Babel, which won for the Oscar this particular year for best score, which is very, I mean, it's an interesting score, but it's not one that, I, that for me doesn't have staying power. I'd rather put this one on than that.
0: Well, you start talking about awards, Andy. Do we need to go into award season?
1: I, I guess we should. I guess I was setting myself up without that even realizing it. was a
0: great, it. great self-segue. That was nice. <laughs> Thanks. Glad I showed up.
1: Yeah, this this film had 24 wins, 38 other nominations. Over at the Oscars, it did win for Best Sound. Really beautiful sound design throughout this film, especially the way that the letters, the voiceovers kind of weave in and out. This is why it is in this particular series, because it was nominated for Best Picture. Of course, it did not win. The film that won was The Departed. Um, it also lost Martin Scorsese for Best Direction. This was Scorsese's chance to finally tie with 3-6 Mafia um it lost best original screenplay little miss sunshine and just uh just to read the other best uh or films nominated for best picture so the departed one Babel, which i had just mentioned for score was also nominated little miss sunshine and the queen those were the five nominees now i had mentioned how it couldn't be nominated for best foreign language film because it was produced by a us company but the other nominees for that, just so you know, are The Lives of Others, which won, After the Wedding, which is a fantastic film, Days of Glory, which was okay, Pan's Labyrinth, which is a really creative film, and Water, which is uh, also a great film. Some some strong contenders there. For me, The Lives of Others by far is the best picture of that uh, group. It's an amazing, amazing film. I would almost say that that could be up here in the best picture category because it's such a strong, strong film. Would I kick Letters from Iwo Jima out? I don't know. I might kick Babel out. Uh, I'd be okay with that. I think Babel's an interesting film, but it's, it just has not had staying power at all for me. So uh, those are the Oscars. Over I think the Lives AF- of Others
0: is, was a lock. I'm, that would, oh. I think it would be crazy to,
1: yeah. Yeah, uh, such a great film. Such I, a great know, film. This Now that we're talking about this series, this is just a side note. Now that especially Parasite has won Best Picture, I'm really curious to see when is the, the next big step is going to be when two foreign language films get nominated for Best Picture. That will be the next step, right?
0: I Yeah, I guess. I, isn't there a sort of hidden ceiling, though, when they have to acknowledge that Hollywood films can also be in languages other than English?
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what these ceilings are. I think that they're making new ceilings all the time. They're,
0: I think they are manufacturing sets. All they are in is the ceiling business,
1: clearly. <laughs> well, when you're building sets all the time, hey, why not have you know, new is. ceilings when you can't? Everything's exactly. a
0: ceiling. I am, uh, I am uh, begrudgingly with you on Babel though, because I, I just feel like uh, what an incredible, like, just watching Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett and Bernal. Gael, uh, Gael Garcia yeah, such yeah. a such an incredible cast but i'm i think i might kick that out too All
1: right. <laughs> i mean it was really interesting at the time but it just like i just it just didn't stick with me so Um, At the AFI Awards, this did win movie of the year, and I thought this was interesting. They had a little write-up for it. Letters from Iwo Jima is a masterpiece of of an American film. Clint Eastwood continues to set the standard, telling stories of uncommon sensitivity on a canvas so grand and glorious that his place in America's cultural legacy seems to have no bounds. Letters from Iwo Jima is a complex examination of duty to one's country, the enemy's country. By presenting the Japanese perspective, the film projects points of view through a prism, reminding us of our common humanity and inspiring us to rise above the past and look forward to a brighter, better future. I thought that was a nice little write-up that they did. That is a lovely little write-up. And last but not least, the awards of the Japanese Academy. I found this to be interesting. They awarded this film Best Foreign Language Film. They, now, everybody has it wrong. <laughs> I, am, I know. I'm like, okay, so did they put this one in there because it was produced by a U.S. company? Like, it just, now my brain is broken. Because I'm now like, they're just but, spe- it's, That's just but it's in Japanese. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. One of our Japanese listeners, please help us understand this. That's uh, a riot. If you have any better understanding of your academy than we do of ours. <laughs> Clearly, everybody's in the ceiling business. How to do at
0: the box office.
1: Well, Eastwood has always been known for his tight budgets and quick schedules, and with two films shot back-to-back, that certainly helped keep the cost down. This film cost $19 million, or $24.1 million in today's dollars. Because Flags of Our Fathers had been a box office flop, though, Paramount sold the domestic distribution rights to this film to Warner Brothers, which had always been good to Eastwood. The film released December sixth, two 2006 in Japan, and was a huge success, holding the number one spot at the box office for five weeks. Here in the States, it opened a few weeks later on December twentieth, two 2006, opposite The Painted Veil, Rocky Balboa, which we've talked about on the show, The Pursuit of Happiness, Charlotte's Web, Aragon, Dreamgirls, The Good German, Kabul Express, Curse of the Golden Flower, The Secret Life of Words, and Venus. Whew, uh, award season, I tell you. Because of this busy season, this opened in spot 51. It did take some time, and with award buzz, it did move as high as 14th, but it never caught on as much as the previous films did. An English dubbed version of the film premiered on April 7th, 2008. That didn't help that much either. It ended up earning 13.7 million domestically and 54.9 million internationally, giving it an adjusted total gross of 87.2 million. It You know, it still made money, proved Paramount wrong for selling off their rights, as the film did land with an adjusted profit per finish minute of nearly $450,000. That's not bad change. Not too bad, not too bad. Not
0: bad change.
1: It helps when Eastwood goes in with a, a very small budget.
0: That's the secret to cracking Eastwood. Not a lot of money.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, it, was, it was great to watch. I'm so glad to have it in the collection, and now i got to go finish Flags of Our Fathers. That is the first thing I'm going to do tonight. I need to have the whole pair. Yes, you do. Before I get there, let's take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flickchart, and it should take you right over to the flickchart database to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up to ours.
1: First up, letters from Iwo Jima or the birdcage. Letters Letters from Iwo Jima. Yeah. Yep. Letters from Iwo Jima or time crimes. Oh, dear. I have Probably to go time time crimes, crimes. Yeah. yeah Letters from Iwo Jima Or Night of the Living Dead Night of the Living Dead Night of the Living Dead Letters from Iwo Jima Or In the Mood for Love In the Mood for Love In the Mood for Love Letters from Iwo Jima Or Sweeney Todd The Demon Barber of Fleet Street Give me the Sween Sweeney Todd indeed Letters from Iwo Jima Or Lethal Weapon Lethal Weapon Oh uh, yeah Lethal Weapon Letters from Iwo Jima or Life of the Party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the anachronistic options sometimes paired in flick charts.
0: I know. I know. <laughs> you know, it's my uh, guilty
1: pleasure. I got to go with Life of the Party here. You're going with Life of the Party? I uh, totally am.
0: I'm gonna let you. Uh, I'm gonna let you go with life of the party, but I am gonna take you to the mat on this on principle for those who think <laughs> you're a fool. Probably, probably. <laughs> oh, I shall you the Andy is a fool uh, yes. v- uh, vote. Here we Please go. Please do. All
1: right, one, one two, two, three. three. Scissors. Rock. Letters from Iwo Jima wins. Letters okay. from Iwo Jima or goodbye, Mister Chips. Letters from Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima or the Thomas Crown Affair, 1968. I think maybe Letters from Ujima. Jima. Uh, boy, I am... Uh, I, I mean, I really enjoy Thomas' Crown Affair. Um, I almost want to say that just because I enjoy the film more um, for different reasons, though. You know? Um, so let's take it to the mat and see what happens. No? Okay. All right, here mm-hmm. we go. One, One two, two, three, three. Papers.
0: scissors. I'm Thomas in a, Crown a takes real
1: it. stretch. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's okay. It landed in spot two twenty eight on our chart. Two twenty eight out of four sixty seven, which puts it, uh, in, you know, not super high. It's a fifty one percent. I, uh, I would say that it deserves to be higher. It's just uh, as we say, we've talked about a lot of good movies on this. We've
0: show. talked about a lot of good movies, but uh, you know, I it was it was hard to to rank on my list too. I found myself getting really upset and ranking it a couple of times. I don't know. Is that a cheat? Because it couldn't, I couldn't get it to land kind of in a place where I felt it was, even though it was hitting, it was hitting movies that I know I need to re-rank. Um, so it it did okay. How did it do on your personal
1: list? It did pretty well for itself. I re-ranked it after watching it because I, I really just found a lot more connection this time. It was ranked a little lower, but it landed in spot 478 out of 4460, which is an 89%, pretty high on my chart.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. Mine hit 408 out of 1464, which is a 72%. If I'm to go by the algorithm uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a three-and-a-half-star movie. Uh, over there, that feels low to me. Given the conversation we just had, I like the movie more than that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I don't. I don't know. Is it a is it a five star movie for you? It's feeling like a four four and a half for me.
1: It's it, you know. I there's something keeping it back from five stars for me. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, I but four and a half. Absolutely. I, I really feel incredibly strong about just the power this film has. And like I said. Just, I mean, that scene with them reading that letter from Sam's mom. I mean, it just broke my heart. So, yeah, four and a half.
0: I'm going to give it four and a half. That half, so I'm going to cleave that half star, and it's going to be the schmaltz
1: half star, <laughs> which, which I didn't even find. So it's weird that I'm not calling it a five I star film. Believe you didn't see because it really feels like it should be a five star film for me. I really just yeah. it it's it hit me in uh, all the right ways. So um, I don't know, four and a half though. All right, four and a half of the heart. There we go.
0: Letters from Iwo Jima is done. We got to be nearing the end of this series, man. What's next?
1: We are slowly but surely. We're getting into the the twenty twenty teens, Pete. We are going to be talking about Michael Haneke's two thousand twelve uh, heavy drama, Amor. <laughs>
0: Okay, I look forward to that. That'll be great. It is the return. Set it up well. That's right.
1: It is the return (laughs) to the series of Jean-Louis Trintignant.
0: Oh, thank goodness!
1: Which I uh, am proud to be able to say now, thanks to you. Oh, this is going to be delightful. It should be fun. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
0: Amazon giveth Andrew, as Amazon always doeth. Except for today, because I didn't do Amazon. Ha <laughs> ha! Tricked you. What, psych? Yeah, tricked me. That's right. I got one from uh, Common Sense Media, and it's the kids. Andy, I love the kids. Oh dear. I think I, it's it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit longer, and honestly, we're just gonna have to see. What do you think? Do you mind if I start, if I kick it off with the kids?
1: Take it away. All this right. is, I, I'm on the edge of my seat. It is a
0: five star. It's a five star review from a kid who's 12 years old watching this wow, movie. Wow. Okay. This movie, wait a minute, hang on. This movie just blew my mind. Does that sound 12? <laughs> Hmm. Letters from Iwo Jima is a great movie about not giving up and even when things are impossible, keep trying. The movie takes place on the island Iwo Jima, of course, and Japanese soldiers are trying to guard the fatal checkpoint on the battlefield from American soldiers. The siege is long planned for and brutal. There is plenty of violence, including bombings, where one man's arm is blown off, and shootings and stabbings, and in one scene, beatings. The movie is for adults or older, Older teens who know when they have to shield their own eyes. No jump scares, but some sudden gunshots may startle a, a, a few shaky viewers. Now, on to the suicide shown. Some cultures believe that in war or facing an enemy enemy and death, it is better to kill yourself than of them to kill you so that you can die with honor. There's a suicide order given and some soldiers escape. Some deaths are exploding yourself. Not much gory, but depressing, stabbing with a cultural Japanese sword, a katana or shooting. There's some blood splatters, some loud noises and a few, uh, well, a lot of tense moments. No sex. Just a flashback of a soldier going to war talking to his unborn child, pregnant wife, no language. But the English captions include some bad words because the entire movie was made in Japanese language. Some smoking from mostly the Americans and some flashbacks of fancy dinners where wine is formally served. Oh, and a dog and a horse's death, nothing shown, just owner cries, may anger or scare animal lovers. The good role models are the ones who stand against the suicide. There are plenty of great messages, including how to help those who surrender From the enemy, both sides, but American laziness is shown. As two soldiers placed on watching prisoners tire and just shoot the Japanese. American laziness. Oh, God. The moment where the main character finds his last remaining friend dead with a bullet in his chest and a white flag of surrender in his right hand is saddening and gives the Japanese soldiers a right to revenge. An American soldier who is dragged into the Japanese camp is helped and given water, remaining morphine and a bed. A Japanese lieutenant who speaks English reads aloud a letter from his, the American soldier's mother, where a great message is spoken letters from iwo jima is a must watch for those who wish to see war from the and other enemy's side <gasps> that was a wow. roller coaster andy
1: that's a future roger eber right there right
0: awesome <laughs> oh and a dog and a horse <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> real stream of
1: consciousness oh, that's great oh like strong work little fella i know oh. Little, For little 12, man.
0: Let's say it again 12 years old. That's awesome.
1: Well, have? I have, uh, I have work, uh, a one star review by a Canadian who, unfortunately, it does not have a, as strong a grasp of the English language <laughs> as, as your very sharp uh, reviewer has. This is by Carol Chartrand, who has this to say I can't look at this movie. It's not the good area. <gasps> oh, area! Yes, not this the movie good apparently area. is not the good area. Well, not for Carol.
0: Back it up, Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> just just kidding. Some of my favorite people are Canadians. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022.